Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, would you open our hearts to the word? We love your word. We choose you over the culture. We want to be loving. We don't want to be self-righteous or harsh. But boy, we follow you. We we walk to the beat of a different drum. And you're our Lord and you're the truth for us. So open our ears and eyes. Soften our hearts now. We come to your word. And I pray for grace to speak yours and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter and John, if you recall, we talked about this wonderful healing of the lame man. Uh, Peter and John were, were heading up to the evening, uh, to the morning sacrifice, isn't it? Uh, no, it was evening. They're going up to the evening offering, which would be that day about 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, and as they're walking and everybody's crowding the streets of Jerusalem, heading toward the temple uh, for an hour and a half prayer service, uh, they, their path merges with a man who's being carried on a stretcher. Two people are carrying him up to the temple. He's, going, he's a beggar. He's been lame from his mother's birth. And whatever happened to him, and I actually think we can tell from what Luke says, whatever was wrong with him, uh, it was evident from the moment he was born. And the family has, since he's been able to, they take him up, put him on the steps, not on the outside walls of the whole court of the Gentiles, but right there at the, at the eastern gate of the temple complex itself, which is in the middle of everything. So anyone going into worship, men and women, uh, pass him. So he's begging there. And uh, this is how he's made a living. So he's on his way, because uh, it's the evening sacrifice. We're going to put him down uh, during the time when people are there. And Peter and John are on their way. And so they're all walking along and, and, and as he sees these men turn to go into the temple where he's heading, he knows they're pious Jews, they're going into worship, and he says, alms for the poor, and looks at them. It says, Peter and John fixed their gaze on him. They, they stared him down. I mean, they're, they're walking along, we're all moving, and they just lock on him, this guy. He drops his eyes, <laughs> it says later, he raised them. And well, actually, Peter says, look at us. You know, so you can imagine with two men staring at you, you're, you're looking down. And Peter says, look at us. He says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, Nazareth, rise up and walk. And it says he seized him by the right hand. (laughs) You know, there was no choice here, man. Actually, there was, or he wouldn't have been healed. Uh, And we talked about that. Uh, He he called on Jesus as he went, and and he knew who this was. And so he grabs him by the right hand, and the man is healed. Luke is a doctor, and so he actually uses medical terms to describe it. He says the soles of his feet, and then he uses the medical term for the ankle. It's called the hammer. There's a word for the hammer. And he says, and the hammer became firm. Now that means, th- you know, I think what you must have had with the child is that the, the foot wouldn't hold. There was nothing, there is a disease called dropsy. I don't know that that's what we're talking about, but it was like that so that the feet had, would not hold. There was nothing to them. 
And he said, and, and so Luke says, the, the hammer, the ankle bones, and the soul became firm, became strong at that moment. And what did he do? He went walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, wouldn't you be noisy? <laughs> right then. Yeah, they, they, the guy is, is just leaping and shouting. I mean, all his life. And everybody in the place has passed this guy a thousand times. Imagine what you would respond. You know someone who has been critically ill or injured and has been for a long time. And, and you say, what would it be if you suddenly saw them jumping around and praising God? You know, you'd, and, and, it, and that crowd responded just exactly that way. It said they literally froze in place. So they're, they're literally frozen. And then it says they're beside themselves. So they're shocked. They're, they're, this, is, this is a miracle that's terrifying in a way. It's, it's, it's just like, what on earth? And they're watching this. Well, once they get a hold of themselves, they, they came together in a great crowd. And Peter's preaching to them. Let's pick up there at, at verse 11. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, the man wouldn't let go. I think he's hugging or maybe even hanging on to the sleeve of their robe. <laughs> he said, this is the, you guys, man, I, I want my healing. I'm going to let go. Uh, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them uh, at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. You can imagine the priests in the temple wondering where everybody went. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, what time is it, you know? But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety? Piety means our own personal holiness. We had made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Please notice, Peter does not in any way let them off the hook. Now, he, he simply says, is, this man was healed. Why are you surprised? He's healed in the man, name of the, you know the guy you uh, just 60 days ago, remember two months ago, said, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Yeah, that guy. That's the one whose name. He just, <laughs> he's not being mean, but he ain't pulling any punches either. He's telling them the truth. It goes on. But remember, you guys, you disowned the holy righteous one, you know, the, the Messiah of Israel, and asked for a murderer, was his name Barabbas? I think it was Barabbas, to be granted to you and put to death, he literally says, the author or source of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And then he, this was the verse we looked at so intensely. And on the basis of faith in his name, Upon his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes, say, through him. Amen. Remember that? You come to the Father through the Son, through his righteousness, clothed with Christ. The faith and focus is on what Christ has done for us. Not on what we do, but on what he has done. That's where the faith gets focused, Peter says. This man, this man call, came to the God, called on God for, for healing through Christ. Has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, now this, I want you to read this one out loud with me. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. Isn't that a little bit startling, that verse? 
I mean, he's just told them that they, and, and this group, this is not a holy day or anything like that. I mean, it's, it's just a normal day. This is the people of Jerusalem. These are the people of Jerusalem come to worship. It's, it's evening, evening offering. This would be a lot of them. People who had heard Jesus speak many times. He spoke every day in the temple. So he's, he, they, they know who he is. This is, a, this is people who some of them will have been at the trial. They will have stood outside the Herodium, and, or, or the, pardon me, the, uh, the, um, the Antonia Fortress, while Pilate sat there in, the, in his judgment seat and Jesus in front of him. They would have been part of the group going, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, they would have said, give us Barabbas. I mean, these, it came out of their lips. A bunch of the ones living, li- listening to him. And did you hear what Peter said? Peter's saying, you didn't know what you're doing. Didn't know what they were doing. Isn't that interesting? He means it. He says, he's going into their heart and he says, brethren, I know you acted in ignorance. Just as your rulers also did. Now that stretches me a little far. And I'll, I'll point out how, how far I can go. <laughs> Verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. You, you, I mean, you were the ones who actually did to the Messiah what Isaiah said would be done, etc. But then he says, therefore, because you acted in ignorance, and I'll, we're going to explain that, therefore repent and turn, is what he says, turn toward the wiping away of your sins. Repent of the way you've been thinking and turn toward the blotting out, the forgiveness, the atoning of your sins. In other words, believe that the guy you you saw was crucified, that his death atoned your very sin for what you've done. In order that times of refreshing and, and this, Peter and the, and the disciples are all living in the refreshing. They're living in an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so that you may be baptized in the Holy Spirit and refreshed in the presence of the Lord as we are being, may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Messiah, appointed for you, handpicked for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration. Would you say Restoration. Yeah, the period of restoration of all things. That's what I was, when I talked about this millennial age, this thousand years, that is so prophesied. And Peter's going to say it. It was prophesied that the Messiah should suffer. But it is absolutely as, as more spoken of. The Messiah comes in glory and sets up his kingdom, gathers Israel turns their hearts back to God and, 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 become, and rules in righteousness the entire planet. That is the period of re- the restoration of all things. He says, so he says, repent and turn toward the wiping away of your sins. Turn toward, call on God for mercy. And he will bring an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on you. And in the right time, he will return and he will fulfill all the prophets have spoken. Let me just put one thing in here. This is free. In the book of Revelation, do you remember that there's this scroll and it says who's worthy to open the scroll? 
And it says it's written on both sides. This, this scroll is sealed with seven seals. Remember all that? And then there was nobody worthy. And then, 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 then John saw the Lamb of God. He is worthy. And people go, some of the silliest things are said about that. It's the title deed of planet Earth and all kinds of things that somebody thought up in a restaurant somewhere. <laughs> Look, what every Jew knew, and you need to know, is that, yes, indeed, there are scriptures that clearly prophesy the Messiah must suffer. But there is also a huge body of prophetic literature that says Messiah must come in power and rule the earth in righteousness. That he will shatter the nations like earthenware and rule them with a rod of iron. He will come and establish righteousness on this planet. That there will be none who defy him. That he will come in power and he will gather his people. He will restore the, the nation. But he will, and, and by the way, uh, you're part of that nation. He, he, will, he, will, he will, the armies of heaven, that's us who are resurrected and coming with him, will come. He'll destroy the, the armies of the enemy. All of that is very prophesied. In fact, Peter is going to say every prophet from Samuel onward spoke of these days. So you've got to understand something. There is no question that Jesus will come again. There is no question that he will, when he comes, set up at least a thousand year period of a righteous rule on this planet. And if you, even if we've died, we come with him. When he comes, if it's during our lifetime, you will be caught up to meet him in the air. The rapture is nothing more than the resurrection. You're standing there and... You're resurrected, and up, up you go. You're resurrected on the spot without having died. Or if you have died, you are, we're, we're, we're with him in the spirit there. And we're immediately clothed with our new resurrected bodies and we come, we return with him to rule. And that doesn't mean just we sit around bossing people. It means we ultimately are ministering on behalf of Christ all over this planet. You are going to be involved in that. You ain't nearly done ministry. You understand? Yeah. It, so this is what Peter's referring to. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. And now Peter ref references Moses, and I'll explain that in a minute. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Say like me. Like me. Yeah, prophet like Moses from, the, from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul who does not heed that prophet shall utterly be destroyed from among the people. That's the coming Messiah Jesus in his glory. He will rule and he will rule with a rod of iron. Likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward announced these days. Is there any doubt they will happen? It is you who are the sons of the prophets and the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first... God raised up his servant and set him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. I'll point out as you just, if you just, you're, just stay there. See chapter four, they are immediately arrested. 
the, the religious leaders come up with the temple police, the captain of the temple police. It's a Levit- Levitical guard. And so that, they come up with the, with the police. They arrest them, put them in jail overnight. And then in the, mo- in the morning, bring them out in front of all of the absolute top leaders of Israel. They all stand in a circle. This is, and, and have this. And Peter, uh, they, they say, by what power did you do this? What other power than God could do it, you know? All right, but what power did you do this? And Peter ultimately says, the name of the fellow you crucified, Jesus. And then he says this, and I want you to read it with me. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's do that once more. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The gift of guilt. When I meet an unbeliever, I need to watch and listen in order to discern what kind of unbeliever that person is. Is this someone who has simply never heard? Is this someone who has heard but didn't understand? Is this someone who has been taught a very distorted picture of Jesus Christ? In other words, is the Jesus they are rejecting the real one? Some people have been raised since childhood to hate Jesus. But have they been told about the real one? No, they have a terrible caricature, a distorted thing. They've been lied to about him all their life. They didn't reject Jesus. They rejected the junk they've been told. Or is this someone who does know the truth, but has simply chosen the world, or is so invested in the world, riches, pleasure, and power, that they're willing to silence the voice of the Holy Spirit? We tend to make blanket assumptions about huge groups of people. We level harsh judgments and write them off as lost, but the truth is each person is different. Yes, some are defiant and have rejected the true God, but others are genuinely ignorant. They don't know what's true and may even have done horrible things thinking they were serving God. Do you know anyone like that? I don't mean in the room. I meant in the Bible. Who am I thinking of? Paul, yeah. The Bible says only God knows the human heart. And today, as we listen to Peter appeal to a crowd gathered in the temple, we'll hear him boldly confront them with their sin. But we'll also hear him compassionately tell them he believes their hearts are still soft because they didn't, they did what they did in ignorance. What does Peter say? Now I'm going to re- this is this is the flow of thoughts of that passage we just read. Peter says to this crowd, You killed the Messiah. Verse 17, but you were ignorant. You didn't understand what you were doing. Verse 18. The prophet said the Messiah would suffer, and he did. Verse 19, repent and turn toward the wiping away of your sins, and you too will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then someday in the future, the Messiah will return, and he will bring the restoration, the promised messianic kingdom to Israel. All the prophets have promised this. Its fulfillment is absolutely certain. Verse 22, the Messiah had to suffer the first time he came, but not the next. When Jesus, our Messiah, comes back to earth, 
He will come as Israel's second Moses. Would you say second Moses? Yeah, I want to stop there a minute. I want you to see what I'm talking about. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Before he died, Moses said this promise. He said to Israel, he said, God will raise up a prophet, and he said this, like me. He'll raise up a prophet like me. And he said, and when he comes, you, everyone will listen to him. And those who don't are in serious trouble. Now, think about that. What kind of prophet was Moses? Well, he was their political leader. He was their military leader. He was their spiritual leader. All of those things combined in this man. He took a ragtag bunch of slaves and, and, and led them through into the wilderness. Miracles happening that were stunning and brought them, put them together as a nation, got the, the law of God, the word of God, directly from the Lord, spoke to him, spoke the words of God and wrote the words of God for the people. Uh, he, 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 he disciplined them. He led them in battle. Has there been anyone like that since Moses? No. Israel knew that. And so there is this expectation in Israel that a second Moses is to come. Now, I'm going to show you. This isn't speculation. Look at this. You John chapter 1. Look at verse 21. This is the questioning of, of John the Baptist. People are asking who he is. And verse 20 says, he confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ, the Messiah. I am not Messiah. Now watch what they ask him in the next verse. They asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? Remember the promise, Elijah will come before Messiah? And he said, I am not. Jesus says he was. Are you the, what's the next one? Are you the, see it? What prophet now? You tell me. The second Moses. Are you the promised prophet Moses spoke of? And he said, no. Now turn to chapter 6, verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, truly this is what? The prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, perceiving they intended to, intending to come and take him by force and make him king. They said, this is the promised second Moses. This is the prophet. Now, you notice in their own minds, it isn't necessarily Messiah. It's kind of a mush. Well, if you're not Messiah, are you the prophet? I mean, it could be two people in their minds. They're not sure. I go on to chapter 7, verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, certainly this is what? The prophet. There it is. The prophet. Others were saying, this is the Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Messiah is not going to come from Galilee, is he? And we go on with the debate. So, all right, now back to your text. Now back to Acts 3. So, what did Peter just tell them? Peter said... When, when Jesus comes back, he will be the, the prophet, the second Moses. The Messiah is the second Moses. He will be like Messiah. When he comes back, he will be our political leader. He will be our military leader. He will be our spiritual leader. 
Uh, this is discussed in your Bible study in, in depth. So have a look at that later on. Not now. He says he will be all of those things. And when he comes, as Moses said, everyone will listen to him or they will be cut off. This is Jesus when he comes. It all made sense to them. This was, this was, this was not just random verses. He is, he's saying something. No one will refuse to obey him this time. There will be severe consequences. Verse 25, as Jews, you hold a privileged position, but not an exclusive one. By being the descendants of Abraham and the prophets, you have the privilege of being the nation through whom the Savior of the world is born. Do you notice the quote he pulled out? The seed, the, and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Hear that? In other words, this isn't just our Messiah. He just, yes, you have a privilege. But this, this Messiah of ours is for the whole world. He's, he's telling them that. Verse 26. The Messiah came to you first. The gospel's being preached to you first. You are the first, and then he says, to get the opportunity to repent and turn from your wicked ways. That's the privilege you get. But this gospel will soon be preached to all the families of the earth. Peter's telling them that. At this point, Peter and John were suddenly interrupted by a group of religious officials who brought with them the captain of the temple police. They were kept in jail overnight and the next day brought in for questioning in front of the nation's religious leaders. Peter tells them, in effect, that the time of their ignorance is ended. Now, knowing what they know, they must confess the name of Jesus. That's what he was saying to them. He wasn't just making a grandiose statement. There's no other name. He was saying... From here on out, you know. You, you're, they, the season of ignorance is done. You know. Now you must confess the name of Jesus. This was such a challenge to them. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's look at the heart, because that's what Peter's dealing with. He's talking about the, how hard is the human heart. Is, is it, has, it, has it deliberately done these things, or has it been done in ignorance? And why does he bring it up? Because, because it makes a difference as to whether that person is still tender and will respond to the gospel. By the way, did, did, did a lot of people respond to Peter's gospel right there? Yeah, yeah how many? No, in this case, it's, it, it's five. <laughs> it goes to five, yeah. Yeah, so, so when Peter says to the group that was going, crucify him, crucify him, your hearts aren't sealed yet. You can still repent, my brothers and sisters. He was proven right. He gives them the truth, man, right between the eyes, and he says, but you're not hard. Repent, please, and the Spirit of God will come on you. And our Messiah will come again in power, just as he said. 5,000 goes, yeah. Peter bluntly confronts the crowd with their collective guilt. But he also assures them that they are not hopelessly beyond the reach of God's salvation. What they had done was, a, was terribly wrong, but they had been deceived when they did it. Rather than deliberately defiant, and because of that fact... It was likely that their hearts were still capable of repenting when shown the truth. Peter very generously included, included their rulers in this statement, which in particular meant the high priest and the Sanhedrin. 
While some in the Sanhedrin must have been deceived, others, including Annas and Caiaphas, were not. Annas is the old man. And in that whole season of Israel's history, Annas is, is either the high priest or one of his sons or son-in-law is, is in that position. But the old guy is in charge behind the scene. That's why when Jesus was arrested, he went to Annas. Annas isn't technically the high priest, but Annas is the guy. So he's the man behind the scene. And then he just, he just has this next generation sort of cycle through the role. So... While some in the Sanhedrin weren't, must not have been deceived, others, including Annas and Caiaphas, were not. How do I know that? They did, they did know Jesus was the Messiah, but rejected him because they didn't want to surrender their positions of authority. This is exactly what Jesus told them using a parable about a vineyard. Do you remember that parable? Jesus said there was a man who had a vineyard, and he would send his servants and say, give me my portion of the, of the harvest. And what did they do to each of the servants? They, they killed them. And then the man says... Well, they didn't respect my servants, but surely they'll respect my son. I will send my son. And what did they do? What did, what did, the, what did the owners of the, uh, or the, not the owners, but what did the managers of the vineyard, God's vineyard, what did they say when they saw the son? They said, this is the son. This is the heir. Let's kill him and the vineyard will be ours. Jesus is telling them, you know who I am. And you don't want to surrender your authority to the Messiah. Therefore, you're going to kill me. And it says specifically in there, they knew what he said to them. They knew that it was directed to them. This is exactly what Jesus told them. And they fully understood the parable was directed to them. So the idea that all the rulers were ignorant would have been more than Peter meant to say. I'm going to just show you one of those. Jesus has some clear statements. He said, if you say you see... Uh, you're blind. I, I, but if you, those who truly are spiritually blind, he said, I've come to give them sight. So he's talking about that ignorance thing, that those who, those who are proud and refuse to see, nothing I can do. But those who know they're blind, those who know they don't have, those I've come to give light to. Paul talks about himself. And let's just see this a minute. First Timothy chapter 1. You want to talk about somebody who had been a harsh opponent of the church. Paul was actually the leader. He was working with those Levitical police. Uh, that's who he'd, he'd take a group of them and was going up to, to Damascus with. Those were Levites. And, and, and they would have had their swords and their equipment. I mean, this, these, are, these are the police, the temple police. And the, the uh, high priest had given him this, these people. And he's headed up to Damascus to arrest and he, ha he, has been, he has been breaking into homes, pulling them out, beating people, throwing men and women, specifically men and women in jail, doing this to women as well. He is so full of hatred and fury at the church of Jesus Christ, he's trying to crush it. And he's the one who stood there as they stoned Stephen and held the coats. In other words, he's in charge. He's the guy overseeing the execution. And remember how Stephen died? Not only did he give him that sermon, but it says his face was like an angel. He was radiant. And how did, what did he say as he died? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Some, I mean, talk about guilty. And listen to what he says here. 
Timothy 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer. Things he said about Jesus uh, would, would have been absolutely awful. And a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because what? I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He said, I thought I was serving God. Now I realize I was hideous what I was doing, but I was truly deceived. He knew that. What difference does that make? And the grace of our Lord was, was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. He's not being polite. He really had done worse things than most anybody. He, he believes every bit of that. Paul, Paul, Paul can, he, he knows he's forgiven, but you can tell he can hardly ever forgive himself for what he did. And then he says, for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, God saved a wretch like me so that the whole world could say, well, if he'll save Paul, he'll surely save me. He said, God made a statement as to how he would forgive virtually anybody when he saved me and was proclaiming through me his grace. All right, now crossing the line. Being ignorant isn't an excuse you can pull out on the judgment day and show to God and he'll let you go to heaven. You understand that? You can't just plead ignorance. That's not the point. But it does mean you weren't deliberately defying God. You didn't fully understand what you were doing, so your heart wasn't hardened as severely as it would have been. We harden our own hearts. But there can be a moment when a person's heart crosses the line. It moves from confusion, deception, or ignorance to knowledge and willful decision. Further claims to be confused or falling back to philosophical questions can't change what happened inside. Yes, God knows when this happens, but the real problem is what you do to yourself. You violate your integrity. You've, now you've chosen to become spiritually blind and deaf. Listen, the most precious thing you have in the world is your integrity. I, I got to just work on this a minute. The most precious thing you have is your integrity. When you lie, when you play games, when you obfuscate and do that, the person you lie to the first and most is yourself. You begin to damage your own capacity to know the truth. You ruin yourself. It is far better, far better. And that's, that's the point of today. It is far better to say, I did it. I, I knew what I was doing. It's wrong. And, and even if you're, gonna, you're at a point saying, and I'm not ready to stop. That is honest. The, 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 the heart that goes into this thing and says, I, 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 I'm a victim. It's all my mother's fault. <laughs> you know, if she'd raised me differently. You know, did, did I ever tell you what my mother did to me when I was four? And you, you, go through these, you go through these things. And, and so what you're saying is, 
I didn't really make a bad moral choice. It wasn't me. It was my mom. I'm just acting out as a poor wounded child uh, from what she did to me. So the moral responsibility is on my mother. Do we do this? Does anyone not? I mean, the American culture is so seeded with this. No one does it. Our society, I was raised in a bad society. Uh, true. I'm not even saying your mom wasn't, 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 wasn't grumpy. I'm not saying she was either, by the way. <laughs> but, but the point is, at some point, you made moral choices. At some point, you chose to be bitter and self-righteous. At some point, you made your own choices. And until I have the character that says, I did, I did, then I'm not ready to be forgiven. I mean, I, I, there's no repentance in there. And if I make a lifestyle of this thing, so that it's always someone else's fault. I'm always the victim. I really, oh, I didn't mean that. When you perfectly well did mean that. You, it's so hard. I mean, I'm in this game too. It's so hard where, where people confront us. They say, well, you said that. And you go, oh, oh I never said that. Or I didn't mean that at all. And truth is you did. But now you don't have the guts to admit it. And so we're constantly, constantly messing with the truth. The most precious thing you have is your integrity. That's you. And the more lying, and the more obfuscating, and the more game playing, the more you shrink. The more you wound your capacity to speak the truth and to be engaged with what's really happening. That's the issue that's going on here. It's one, and so Peter is actually saying, you just crucified the Messiah, you idiots. But you didn't know it. You were full of religious passion. You were deceived. You did a horrible thing, but you didn't mean to. It wasn't like you fully understood who he was and said, well, let's stone him or let's crucify him. You didn't, you didn't know. Therefore, that, harsh, that terrible decision to actually violate God didn't happen. So I think your hearts are still soft enough to hear the truth. And if you know the truth, and you're looking at a man healed that you know is a miracle in front of you. We're proclaiming to you the resurrection. And some of you right now are capable of saying yes to Jesus. And he was right. Thousands said yes to Jesus right then. In spite of the police coming up. Where did I go? Okay. Now, now you've chosen to become spiritually blind. This decision damages you far more than the sin itself. Because a piece of the real you dies inside. You find it becomes harder to feel sorrow or repent. The more you do it, the worse it gets. The brighter the light that's rejected, the greater the darkness that results. Now, I'm going to deal with something, and I'm not just going on a tangent. This is connected, but I hear this enough that it needs to be addressed. Turn with me to Mark 3. Let's talk about the unforgivable sin. I get asked with some regularity... If someone's committed the unforgivable sin. There is actually, and I, I hesitate to even tell you this. There's a website. So many people are worried about this. That there's actually a website where people go who feel they've done it. And are commiserating with one another. For they feel they're forever damned. Isn't that amazing? It's horrible. 
So let's have a look at it. You know, let's see what it really is. I, I, let's, I'm going to start you at Mark 3, and I'm going to just sort of tell you through a little bit of this chapter, and then we'll get to the point. Mark 3, verse 1, you can see what's going on. Here's the context. He, he entered again into a synagogue, and a man whose hand was withered uh, was there, and they were watching him to see if he'd heal him on the Sabbath. Well, the man's got this withered hand, and Jesus looks around and says he's actually angry. He's just disgusted with this religious environment. Imagine feeling that somehow it was a violation of the, of the law to heal somebody on God's day of rest, that this was work you couldn't do. It's just like it's ridiculous. And so he looks around and he says, so, so is it right to do good on the Sabbath? You know, and he says, stretch out your hand. And the man, and the hand comes out in front of everybody. And they decided, we gotta kill this guy. Now, there's something wrong with this. It's really strange. I mean, at what point would you not say that? Would you, if someone, you watched this happen and you watched a man that you'd known. I mean, you're in these villages. They all know each other forever. And you watched this man, you know so well, suddenly have his hand again. Would you decide you want to kill the guy who did it? I mean, this is bizarre. I mean, do you follow it? This is the context. Okay, well, let's move on. It says there in verses 7 on on, and he says, you know, he's, people were coming from all over. I mean, they were literally coming from Tyre and Sidon. That's Phoenicia. They're coming. Huge crowds uh, beyond the Jordan uh, means over to the east. Uh, and, and, and a great number of people heard of all that he was doing came. And he told his disciples, he stands in a boat and he preaches to them, for he had healed many, and the result of, of all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they'd fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. So here he is casting devils out and healing. Now let's picture this. Let's suppose, you, what would it be like to actually be in the crowd where this is happening? Picture yourself. There's thousands of people you're gathered out in some place out in the countryside. Thousands of people. And person after person who comes up to this Jesus. They're bringing them the demonic people. The people who are, 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 are raving. The people who are so depressed they, they have to restrain them from killing themselves. They, they're bringing them sick, withered hands, legs, children full of raging fever. And this Jesus, with a word or with a touch, is healing them all. Can you imagine the anointing? I mean, if you think when we worship, the Spirit comes, what would it be like to stand there next to the Son of God and watch his, that love and that sweetness moving on people? You may not understand what you're looking at, but don't tell me your heart isn't telling you loud and clear. This is beautiful. You feel. It's not just what you know. You feel. You feel his presence. You feel his love. You can feel who's in the room. Whether you know what's going on, your heart tells you loud and clear. We know a great deal intuitively. In fact, I think it's one of our, it's our main source. We know intuitively a lot of things, and then our brain gets in the way, is what often happens. All right, so now look. So here we are. Look at verse 22 now. 
in this kind of environment, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, those would be, those would be religious teachers, they're the ones that copy the Torah, were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, the Lord of the flies. He casts out demons by the rulers of the demons. What does it take to stand there and watch a child with diphtheria, that was around then, raging fever, the, the whole membrane thing and all, and watch a child with diphtheria healed on the spot. And you know Jesus, this sweet, loving, pure man, this man full of compassion. What is it like to look at him, do that, and then say, that's demonic. What? It's what? Are you in? No, you're not insane. This isn't insanity. This is defiance. This is war. You know who he is. You know what you're feeling. And you're willing to call it demonic. Now listen to what happened. Verse 23, he, he called them to himself and began speaking to them in, in parables. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? Look at he's even appealing to them. In that, that stupid, I mean, incredible remark. He's even appealing to them now. He says, look, look, what do you mean? I, you're watching demons come out of these people. Do you think Satan's casting his own demons out of people? Why do you say that? And then he says, verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now look at the text, would you? This is a troubling passage for many. And I've often been asked to evaluate whether or not a person has blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not saying bad things about him. It's far deeper than words. It takes place when a person refuses to acknowledge what their heart knows to be true and then takes it another step and defiantly labels the manifest presence of God as demonic. Is that what was happening? That's exactly it. It has nothing to do with railing at God in anger after some tragic event. Did you hear me? I don't know how many people they've been... I mean, I can tell... These are real life... People, a man who's prayed for his wife to be healed. She dies. And he goes out in the rain and screams at God and curses him. Is he blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What's he doing? He's just vomiting his pain. Is God offended? No. God's standing there comforting this poor, troubled Frightened, angry man. This isn't blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is a man who's just out of his mind with pain. Do you follow this? All right. Here's another. These are things I've lived through. I've watched. It has nothing to do with railing a God in anger and isn't happening when horrible things are said in drunken outbursts. I've had, I've had sailors come to me and somewhere along the line they got so drunk they went out and and cursed God and said every bad thing they could think of, including you know, cursing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and going down the whole thing. Was that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I was a drunken sailor. 
acting as an idiot. Jesus speaks these words to people who are watching him minister in power and yet who are willing to call something so obviously of God demonic. Imagine yourself in that crowd watching Jesus. Your head may not understand, but your heart knows God's there. No one watching such love in action, healing the sick and delivering the oppressed, can stand there and not be moved. No one can be in that environment and not recognize the heart of God. What's happening to people is beautiful. Intuitively, I intuitively know this is holy. So for me to willingly suppress my conscience and call that lovely working of the Holy Spirit demonic requires the ultimate violation of my integrity. Here, when God's light is shining the brightest, I call it darkness. But I prove by this that I am willing to do or say anything with no regard for the truth so long as I can avoid surrendering to his lordship. This is a cold, passionless decision to win at all costs. And if this step is taken, something in me dies and apparently can't be restored. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a horrible thing. If, you've done, if, if someone had done it, you've so, so damaged your conscience, you won't care. You'll feel very right about yourself. You'll just go on. You, it's, 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 it's a done deal. It's, it's, it's self-damage is what we're talking about. The gift of guilt. It takes a lot of courage to admit guilt, to acknowledge wrong choices, to boldly face the truth about myself and my relationship with God. But feeling guilty is a lot better than falling deeper and deeper into self-deception. It means my conscience is still working. I still have the integrity to discern between what's holy and what's unclean. And here's where God's grace becomes amazing. God doesn't push me away, but invites me to bring my guilt to him. Asking only that I repent of the way I've been thinking and turn in faith to his son so my sins may be wiped away. The Lord's table regularly leads us to confess our sins and receive his mercy. Listen to, listen to Paul, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11. Turn with me. This is the last place. You'll recognize this passage. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church who has really been doing some awful things. They have gathered in their smaller homes with large crowds. And... The poor are left outside and the rich go into the house. The rich have lots of bread and they also have wine and they have the Lord's Supper and they literally get drunk on the wine and feast on the bread. Leaving the poor, probably the large number of people, outside with nothing. Paul is angry to say the least. And so the, he's, this is the context in which he is speaking to them to correct them. Now listen, you'll recognize this. Verse 23, chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, would you please remember what this is about? Then he says, he warns them. And he says, whoever drinks the bread or drink, eats, eat, pardon me, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You're literally, in that context, you're disrespecting and, 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 and shaming the symbols of our precious Lord's body and blood. But a man must examine himself and in, in, in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink of the cup. There should be introspection. You should do it reverently and you should look at yourself and evaluate your need for God's forgiveness. For he who drinks and eats and drinks, drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. That doesn't mean you can't come to the communion table with sin. We all do. But he, this, he's saying, if you disregard it and treat it cheaply, and, and he says, as you have been, he says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick. There's disease going on and a number sleep. Some people have even died uh, as a result. And then he says this incredible statement. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Say that with me, would you? Did you hear what he said? When I, when I come to this table... This, how do I judge myself rightly? I get honest. Lord God, whatever sins are here, I don't, I don't blame, I don't lie, I don't cover them up, I don't harden my heart. I freely and easily, unafraid, unafraid, I bring my sin before you today. But why? Because I know that what I have is nothing but mercy from God. The gift of guilt is that it leads us to the mercy of God. When I, 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 I no longer have to be afraid. The, 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 the guilt of the Bible simply means I did something wrong. Doesn't mean I'm hated. Doesn't mean I'm, I'm shameful. Doesn't mean I'm not his child. Doesn't mean I'm not loved. It means I did something wrong. And what does he want from me? Honesty. Honesty, not blaming and not guilt shifting and not doing anything. He wants me to just own it, bring it to him. And Paul says, so when we come to the Lord's table, here's our opportunity. He says to judge our hearts rightly. Lord God, whatever's in there, whatever I've said or done or thought, just, just show me. I happily and quickly confess it and give it to you. We're able to put upon the torn shoulders of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he bears it away from us. Now, this is such a strong theme for me. When I take communion, I, not only, I give him my sins. It's just a time to say, Lord, what's in there? What's in there? What attitudes are there? What pride is there? What, what, what fear? What, who have I not forgiven? Just cleanse the hearts. Just unload the junk. It's like taking the garbage out. Just dump the garbage. Get it out. And I, I give it to Jesus. And he bears it away from me. And then when I take the cup, I, I'm celebrating reality. I'm saying, I am washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And I am given the new covenant. The new covenant which says, my sins are remembered no more. 
And I am filled with the Holy Spirit, for I become a holy temple. New Covenant says, they'll all know the Lord, from the least to the greatest. All of us, full of the Holy Spirit. The gift of guilt is that it simply leads us to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. This is our salvation. You will never, you will never sin so greatly. What an example we had today. The very people that chanted, crucify him. The very people that said, give us a robber and a a murderer in Jesus' place and watched him rip to pieces. That very people, God forgave as soon as they would repent and turn toward the wiping away of their sins. What a gospel. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. The only one thing is refuse to repent. That's the only thing that gets in the way. Our Father this day, we are so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, today we bring to you our sins and our sorrows. We bring to you our sickness. And we place on your shoulders, our Lord, our our Passover lamb, our scapegoat. We place on you the things we've done. By faith, you die for us. By faith, we die with you. And by faith, we are clean. By faith, these, these sins have passed away. They do not judge us. They do not have any power over us. They are gone. You constantly wash us and start us anew. What a gospel. What a gospel you've brought us clean and forgiven, loved and filled with the Spirit over and over again. We boldly come. We boldly come now to your, to your throne through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray it. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.